The two primary uh, competing hypotheses uh, are termed naturalism or theism. Now, naturalism says that everything proceeded from natural causes uh, by undirected means uh, through blind chance, and that matter and energy are all there is. The theistic uh, view, however, is that there is a superintelligence above us uh, that has made all of this happen. Now, every scientist, even the materialist, will agree that there is in the world, in the universe, in our earth, in everything that we see, there is the appearance of design. They'll agree that there is the appearance of design. But the naturalist will try to prove that all of this appearance of design has come from purely natural causes, while the theist will say it looks designed because there was a designer. So we're asking the question, what is the preponderance of the evidence? The legal term, the preponderance of the evidence, in the scientific world, we refer to that as the inference to the best explanation. We analyze the various explanations for the evidence that we see, and at the end of it all, the evidence suggests A or B. And that's what we're going to do, or that's what we are doing uh, through this study. So the evidence thus far, what is the evidence? What are the things that we can tangibly see and know to be true? Well, we know now that there was a beginning. And that is only in the last 100 years or less, actually, that all of science has finally agreed that, yes, there was a beginning. And we have also learned that the universe is extremely tuned for life, finely tuned for life. And not just finely tuned, but tuned on a razor's edge for life. We also know that life today is very, very complex, dramatically more complex than the earlier life forms were. So the Darwinian or natural explanation for all of this is that all the life forms we see today are descended from the first living cell that arose through a series of random, undirected processes acting through natural selection, survival of the fittest, competition for nutrients, uh, acting on mutations inside the cell's reproductive system. Now, that's the naturalist view of how it is that we have complex life today. Now, if you notice, the naturalist view here begins with the first cell. And so, as we have mentioned previously, Darwin never tried to explain the origin of life. He had no idea how the first life began, but in that first cell, he said from there, everything has happened accidentally, blindly, and evolved uh, through natural selection and mutation to the point where we have complex life today. And of course, the theist says, well, you can't get this kind of design without a designer. And so we're looking at the evidence for that. Now, uh, we saw last week uh, that the fossil record shows no record of anything transitional from that first cell. Darwin saw the first cell. Now, he had no idea what was in that cell, 
because the uh, ability he had at the time to enlarge that cell was limited to the appearance of a small blob of jelly. That's all he could see in the cell. And so he called it protoplasm. He didn't really know what it was, had no way to know what it was, and just referred to it as protoplasm and thought it was really nothing special. It was alive, but that's all it was. It was the first cell. And uh, he made no reference whatsoever to how that first cell came to be alive because he had no idea whatsoever. Uh, now, we would expect then, based on his theory of how life uh, evolved, not how it began, but how it evolved, we would expect that there would be some evidence of these things changing over the millennia, and we actually do have a lot of record over the millennia. It just happens that none of it supports that theory. The, um, the evidence suggests that uh, there, were, uh, there was early life in simple forms, but the Cambrian explosion, which we discussed last week, was full of complex life in a geologic instant. It's as if complex life began. That's the record. That's the evidence. And so the Darwinian explanation for uh, life actually works very well in terms of survival, but it says nothing about arrival. And that's the evidence that we have so far on that. So we wonder in the world, how did simple life begin? Obviously, there was not life and then there was life of some form. How did that life begin? Now, the materialist, again, is interested only in matter and energy. So the materialist, the naturalist, the atheist, the atheist has to find some way for matter and energy to create life. Well, maybe it was chemistry. We are chemicals, after all. You're aware of that, right? We're all chemicals. You're about 60% water, but if you break the water apart, you're about, uh, help me, Thomas, I think you're about 90% or so, around 90% oxygen. No, not quite that much, but it's pretty high. It's very high, 85% or so oxygen. Hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, I don't know, one or two others. Carbon, sorry. Uh, you're, uh, yeah, a lot of carbon. <laughs> you're, you're chemicals. And so maybe the answer is in chemistry. Maybe somehow these chemicals got together and somehow gave us the first life. So we're going to look tonight at chemistry. <clears throat> well, in the 1920s, 29, I think it was, a Russian scientist, Alexander Oparin, actually took Darwin a step further. Where, where Darwin had written the book, The Origin of Species... Alexander O'Parent uh, wrote the book, The Origin of Life. And he postulated that indeed, as Darwin had hinted, that perhaps in the warm little pond, the right chemicals had come together and somehow spontaneously begun to replicate. Life formed from the combination of the right chemicals in the right environment. And that book, uh, by the way, became a bestseller 
in uh, the 30s and continuing. And in 1953, a graduate student, uh, Stanley Miller, uh, concocted a way to simulate what he thought would be the early Earth environment. And this is the apparatus uh, that he used. And so you have water, you have heat, which would simulate uh, evaporation, and uh, then you have on the left side the uh, combination of gases in a controlled environment, so hydrogen, methane, and nitrogen, uh, basically, and ammonia and nitrogen in, in uh, compound form, and he shot some electricity through that, and after a few days, the water at the bottom that was evaporating and then recondensing turned black. Guess what it was? Amino acids. And amino acids are the building blocks of life. Well, they're not all the blocks, but they are one of the building blocks of life. Well, it turns out we know a lot uh, after years later, and this a lot of excitement about this, life in the test tube was the big news uh, in the uh, mid-50s. Well, of course, it wasn't life in the test tube. It was the first building block of life found to be in the test tube. Well, we could spend some time going through this experiment, but here's the short story. Uh, over several years, uh, in fact, within 10 years, roughly 10 years of, of his experiment, scientists had determined that really the early atmosphere was really not like that probably after all. It probably did contain some oxygen, and so the warm little pond would have been exposed to oxygen, and oxygen just kind of almost immediately kills that uh, bi biologic combination. And you're familiar with what oxygen does because you see rust around your house all the time. Well, it's the same, it's the same thing uh, to a biologic compound. The presence of oxygen will shut that down immediately. And scientists really came to believe that the early Earth did not have nearly as much oxygen as it does today, but it probably did have some and that probably all by itself uh, would have stopped that compound, uh, the, the production of amino acids. But his experiment did produce some amino acids. And as I mentioned, amino acids are the precursors of proteins, uh, which are uh, the, not building blocks, but the major, major uh, functional parts of life. Now, there's a lot more to it, and I'm not a chemist, but you have thousands of proteins in your body. And so if you can figure out how to build, synthesize amino acids, and if you can figure out how to make those into proteins, you actually might be onto something. Well, so far we're actually not. Let's see what we can find if this way, we the first icon of evolution I wrote about was the Miller-Urey experiment from 1953. Darwin himself actually didn't talk much about the origin of life. His theory began with the first living cell and went from there on. But uh, he hinted, Darwin that is, hinted at the origin of life in some what he called one little pond. In the 1930s, uh, various people came up with an idea that life began on the early Earth when lightning created organic molecules in the atmosphere, which then dissolved in the ocean to form what they called the primordial soup. 
Well, this was all hypothetical until Stanley Miller in 1953 uh, performed an experiment in which he put in a glass apparatus a mixture of gases that he and others thought represented the early Earth's atmosphere. And then he shot an electric spark through that and collected the products in water at the bottom of the apparatus. And after about a week, he was able to detect two of the simplest amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. Uh, when I wrote Icons of Evolution in 2000, uh, many biology textbooks had images of the Miller-Urey experiment, because although Darwinian evolution doesn't start till after the origin of life, uh, there was this grand evolutionary story that the textbooks wanted to tell, and the Miller-Urey experiment was part of that story. There are many problems with the Miller-Urey experiment. He used a mixture of gases, uh, methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen in his apparatus that many scientists at the time thought represented the early Earth's atmosphere. But uh, by a decade later, most geoscientists or many geoscientists uh, were convinced that the early atmosphere was not like that at all. First of all, uh, it seems there was probably some oxygen present. Well, if you had put oxygen in the Miller-Urey apparatus with hydrogen and then shot a spark through it, the thing would have blown up. So oxygen had to be excluded. Uh, and yet it appears now that probably there was some oxygen in the early atmosphere. The uh, early atmosphere apparently was not rich in hydrogen. Most geoscientists now think the early atmosphere consisted of the same gases that come out of volcanoes in the modern world. And those gases are water vapor, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen. Well, if you put those gases into the Miller-Urey apparatus and shoot a spark through them, you don't get any amino acids at all. You have to have some free hydrogen present. So when you put a realistic mixture of gases in the Miller-Urey apparatus, you don't get anything like the building blocks of life. And so the experiment appears now to be irrelevant to the origin of life. But there's an even more serious problem. Even if someone could show, and every now and then someone publishes a paper claiming to show, that certain basic building blocks of life could form under pre-life conditions without any sort of intelligent design or intervention. Even if we could show that, we would still be uh, immeasurably far from creating a living cell. And here's how we know that. And this, this was published even before Icons of Evolution. If you take a little flask, a little test tube, and you put in a sterile buffer that's a salt solution with no living thing in it at all, then you add one living cell to that sterile solution, and you poke a hole with a sterile needle. The contents of the cell will leak out into the buffer, and you have in your hand all the molecules you need for a living cell, because the cell was just alive a minute ago. Not just the building blocks, the DNA, the proteins, the membranes, everything is there. And yet, every scientist knows you cannot put that back together and make a living cell out of it. I call it the Humpty Dumpty experiment. So even if we could show how all the chemical building blocks of life formed on the early Earth without any intelligence or design, 
we would still be immeasurably far from understanding how life began. Because we can have all the chemicals present and still not know how to make a living cell. The whole thing remains a mystery. So, we're not talking about having building blocks present. We're talking about having all the elements of life present. All the molecules necessary to make a cell function and still we cannot get that cell back together again. So far chemistry hasn't given us the answer. Well, let's look at a few more things uh, uh, about this and, and I apologize because really probably the rest of this is a little bit boring. Uh, you, you've seen the most exciting part of it. They just don't know. And I, I think back to uh, the presentation we had from uh, Dr. Paul Davies a few weeks ago. If you remember the kind of the toward the end of the uh, presentation, he kept saying, we don't have a clue. Well, despite uh, the efforts thus far, even in uh, organic chemistry, they still don't have a clue. But nevertheless, at, at the risk of boring you a little, let's look a little bit more at what's involved in trying to make all this work. So amino acids, not, not all of the building blocks, just one of the key building blocks to making life, there are 20 amino acids. And those 20 acids in combination, various combinations, make proteins, and you have thousands of proteins in your body. So complex life requires thousands of proteins made from 20 amino acids. Let's look at what's involved in making a protein. So we're going to be, as an example, we're going to make a super simple protein. Probably more simple than actually exists in real life. But this is just for example. So we have a four character protein. Remember, we have four characters out of 20. We've, we've, we're going to form a protein out of four characters. And that means that there are actually 160,000 ways to put those four characters together. One of them works. Now, to be fair, and I probably have a slide on this later, so I'm messing up my own presentation. Uh, to be fair, Dr. Doug Axe did a multi-year study at Cambridge to try to determine the probability of a functional protein arising by chance. And he found that it was 1 times 10 to the 77th power. So you wouldn't even get one by chance here out of 160,000 tries. There's 160,000 ways to combine four letters, and we don't really even have a functional protein yet. Well, okay, so let's look at a little bit bigger example. Four-character protein, 160,000. Now, um, the proteins in your body, in all your cells, have between 50 and 3,000 proteins. 
3,000 is way up on the high end and 50 is way down on the low end of the uh, number of amino acids in the proteins uh, in your body. So we looked at four characters and in fact it's between 50 and 3,000. Let's look at an example here of an average protein size. This is a true average protein size of 300 amino acids. Well, that will mean that in terms of the possible combinations, there are 20 to the 300, and if you convert that to base 10, 10 to the 390, 10 with 390 zeros after it. You cannot grasp a number that big. You can't grasp a number that big. And that's the number of possible combinations for a 300-character protein. Now we'll go back to the 10 to the 77th. So if there are one out of 10 to the 77th possibilities, if you could do 390 zeros times 10 randomly, at the end of all that, you might have four to five that would fold properly. Random chance just doesn't work in combining proteins to come up with life. It's sort of like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You have to get it just right, or it's not the right word. Okay, so another example here to make the point. Here's a four-character protein. Same four characters. Four characters here, four characters there. Can you think of a case where those would be those words would be interchangeable in a sentence? Amino acids, 20 characters, it's like an alphabet. It spells out a protein of 50 to 3,000 characters. And here's a four-character example of the use of an alphabet. They're both four characters, and they're all the same letters, but they're not in the same sequence, and they don't say the same thing. And the same thing is true with proteins. Now, if that's not enough to mess up the uh, organic chemist, uh, let's look at something that will throw them for a loop. Now, if you want to remember a couple of three things uh, out of all this uh, to, as takeaways on the, on the chemistry science uh, part of the uh, chemistry part of the discussion in science, then the first would be that uh, thus far uh, amino acids have been synthesized, but no functional protein. In fact, amino acids have been found on meteorites, so it turns out it's not really that big a deal. But the uh, odds of finding a functional protein by chance are just so infinitesimal as to really reach the point of being impossible. So that'd be one point. And this is going to be the other point. It turns out that amino acids are just like your hands. So they look the same but they're not identical, you can't put your right hand into a left-handed glove or vice versa. 
superimposed mirror images, but not the same, and they won't go in the same place. And the term for this is chirality. Uh, the, these are, are referred to as chiral. So that's kind of the takeaway word. If you want to remember that and, and uh, discuss that with your friend who's talking about science and you're in chemistry, the key thing is that amino acids are chiral. Now, in the natural environment, they occur in both forms together, just like your hands. Now, here's another big word, if you want it. That's called racemic. So they are racemic in that they occur together in the same uh, solution, in the same compound, etc. They occur naturally in the uh, left-handed and the right-handed version, L and D. Why they call it D? Well, that's Latin. Uh, left seems pretty simple. I thought they should have called it R, but they didn't. They called it D. So uh, amino acids are chiral, and the naturally occurring form is racemic, meaning that they are mixed together. But here's the thing. Your body, complex life, will only use the left-handed version. So they occur naturally, left and right, just like your hands, but the body can only make a protein out of the left-handed version. How does the body know how to take a mixture and select only the left-handed version? Because it does. The enzymes in the ribosome select out the left-handed version of the correct amino acid in order to form the protein. In fact, the D version, the right-handed version of that, is sometimes even toxic to the uh, process. And yet your body deals with that every day. What is the point? Well, the point is that in the naturally occurring synthesis of amino acids, like in Stanley Miller's experiment, he got both at the tell you and all that was that they were siphoning off the right-handed versions because that didn't work. We didn't like that result. And so we had to siphon off the right-handed versions of that. Now, it turns out that in all the experiments today done in organic chemistry, trying to, again, uh, establish these building blocks of life, that the scientists who are doing these experiments purchase purified left-handed amino acids because their experiments won't work if they buy a racemic mixture of amino acid. Now, the let's see, did I, can I go back to that? This is a really interesting point. I, I don't have a slide for this. <clears throat> but um, you, you can see that the, the um, uh, element is the same. The mixture is the same. The, uh, it, it's identical, except that it's left-handed and right-handed. So if you will... Now, of course, the left-handed one is actually on the right there, right? Yeah, left hand. So here's, here's an interesting um, point about the left-handed and right-handed and um, sometimes being toxic to the process. Some of you are old enough to remember, I think it was the 60s, thalidomide. You remember thalidomide? You remember hearing about that? Birth defects that came from taking thalidomide? 
Well, why were they given thalidomide? Well, uh, because some tests indicated that thalidomide was a, um, not exactly tranquilizing, I can't think of a better term, but it, it was, a, it, it made the, it made uh, the, uh, the early stages of, of uh, pregnancy less difficult. Well, it turned out that the right-handed version of thalidomide caused birth defects. Same drug, left-handed version was good, right-handed version caused birth defects. And when the pharmacy, when the uh, drug company made thalidomide, they didn't know that. And so they made a racemic mixture of left and right and sold that uh, into the population at large and we got a lot of birth defects. Left-handed, right-handed. Left-handed worked, right-handed hurt. Uh, 